Okay, everybody, if you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome, welcome, everybody. We are halfway through Advent, so hopefully your day crescendo is happening. You are front-loading as much of the busy craziness of Christmas um, so that over the next over the coming days until the 24th, we can be, you know, closing down, getting still, getting quiet, opening up space for hope. And during the season of Advent, we look to the prophets who teach us how to do this, how, how to open up space for hope um, without getting sentimental and ignoring reality or cynical and saying reality is too terrible. And this week, we turn from Old Testament to New Testament prophets. And our first one is John the Baptist. And we're reading here from Luke chapter 3. Let me read. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So this is a big moment. You know, uh, that Israel's last prophet was 400 years earlier, Micah, who we read last week. But now we're told the word of God came to John. And this signals to us that he's a prophet. A prophet is anybody um, to whom the word of God comes. And then they're asked to bring that word to the people. And we're told that this happens to John in the wilderness, which is this deeply symbolic place for Israel. We talked about it all summer practically, in, in the book of Exodus. And um, so it, the, the wilderness, it's big. It's this place of, of testing, of trial, a place where people are challenged to change and grow and often asked to reconsider their commitments. But there's this other thing. The wilderness was also a revolutionary image. It had these overtones of political revolutions. They began in the wilderness often, far from the cities, far from the public eye. This is where Revolution was fomented. And so, so when it says John the Baptist showed up in the wilderness, all of this is kind of hanging over this, right? And, and all this symbolism is in play. And, and we're told that he's preaching a baptism of repentance. Um, now, baptism in the Jewish imagination had a specific um, meaning that the liturgy for conversion to the Jewish faith involved baptism, or you could be baptized like as a ritual cleansing at decisive moments in your life. But this is a different kind. We're, set, we're told it's a baptism of repentance. And, and this word we talk about a fair amount. Uh, in Greek, it's metanoia. Um, metanoia means um, it's not like feeling sorry for stuff. It means change your direction, turn around and go the other way. It has the same root as our word paranoia, just like returning to the same delusions over and over. To repent is the opposite of paranoia. It means come to your senses, change your heart and life and overall trajectory of your life. This is what John's calling people to. And we're told that his preaching fulfills this big prophecy that was part of Hebrew scripture. Um, it says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways made smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. So John is, John is the voice. 
crying out in the wilderness, saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And this is why we read this text during Advent. Isaiah had predicted that Messiah would come and there would be this voice crying in the wilderness, in this revolutionary place, preparing the way for Messiah. And I don't want us to miss the, the gist of this because what's going on in the passage is pretty remarkable. They're out there in the sticks, you know, away from the centers of power. There's a revolutionary feeling in the air and, and the word of God has showed up for the first time in centuries to this character, John. And John comes out and says, what Messiah is going to do is so counterintuitive, it's so revolutionary, that everyone needs to get a running start or Messiah will just zoom right past them. They have to repent and change course. Get running in the other direction because Messiah is going to turn the world on its head. The high will be made low, the low high, the, the crooked things will become straight. Everything's going to get a course correction. And, and for the people, the situation's so bad, they're, they're unsatisfied, dissatisfied with the status quo. And it's bad enough for them. They're flocking out into the wilderness to see this crazy wild-eyed prophet. Crowds of people are coming, and we're told that John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I don't know why, but this, this passage always kind of cracks me up. Because these are like, these are the people you, you want to encourage. Like, these people are dissatisfied enough with the way things are that they have left where they are, gone out into the wilderness. Some have walked for days, hunting all over the Jordan Valley. For John, they finally find him, and he's like, you brood of vipers. You know, like, don't go to a party at John's house, okay? It is not fun. Um, the, the word brood here, jenny uh, mata um, in, in, um, in, in Greek, it means um, offspring, a big bunch of uh, kids, like a brood of, of children. So he's calling them children of vipers, a brood of vipers. See, they were born into this family of corruption with corrupt parents. And so you, you start to think, well, maybe it's not, not so bad for them, but I read this week, this is new to me, that back then, they, what they thought was when, when um, baby vipers were born, they would eat their way out of the mother's belly, killing her as, as they're being born. So this is, this is not a nice thing that he called these people. It's a fierce insult, and he says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Like, how did you know, like, this is the right thing to do? Like, who told, who told you that? And then he adds this requirement kind of over and above just fleeing to the wilderness and being baptized. They need to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. He wants hard evidence of a course correction. And then he's like, don't even come at me. I know what you're going to say before you say it. Don't even come at me with this Abraham is our father stuff. Like, you don't have special status just because you're Jewish. God can make Jewish people out of rocks, Okay. Besides, and then he says this, besides, the axe is already at the base of the tree. There's this imminent threat here. The tree is often, Israel portrayed as a tree, and especially their, their leadership. This, the current leadership is being rejected. The, this tree is going to get cut down. 
Okay, so just step back for a second. Picture the scene. John is this crazy wild-eyed prophet. We, we haven't even talked about the fact that he's dressed like Elijah. He's in a costume, and it's obvious to everyone. He's eating locusts and honey. Yum, right? And, and he shows up at the beginning of all the Gospels out in the wilderness, this revolutionary place where people come to be tested and to change. And he's saying the ax is at the root of the tree of the current regime. And as people flock to John, he tells them, change the trajectory of your life. He says, ritual baptism isn't enough. Just being um, Jewish isn't enough. You have to repent, change your actual behaviors and pursuits. And this has to bear fruit in your life. And the overarching reason that it gives for this is that he's preparing the way for Messiah. Because when Messiah shows up, only those people who have made this course correction and are moving in a particular trajectory can get in on what he's doing. This is huge for, for our faith and especially for the season of Advent. It's this claim John's making that the trajectory of our lives will shape the way we react to Messiah when Messiah shows up. It's not just our heritage or our beliefs. It's the trajectory, the direction our lives are, are moving. This will determine whether or not we can participate in what God's doing when God shows up. It's like a, a pass play in the game of football. Like to, comp to complete a, a forward pass, the quarterback and the receiver have to be on the same page. The receiver can run like the, a totally crazy looking route as long as he ends up in the, in the same place that the ball is going. And the receiver's trajectory has to pass, um, cross the trajectory of the ball at a critical point. And, and the key is once the ball is in the air, like it's up to the receiver to adjust to the path of the ball. If, if he's expecting the throw like to come to the inside and the quarterback throws it to the outside, if he continues on that trajectory, he'll end up in, in the wrong place to catch it. And so he has to repent, turn his shoulders and, and start moving in it on a different tra trajectory to catch up to the ball and, and run toward the ball so that they can intersect. So John, John is saying the ball is already in the air. It's flying. You have to turn your shoulders and run the other direction if you want to make the catch. Messiah's here. It's go time. But your current trajectory is taking you away from what God is doing. And so you got to change course or you can't make the play. When Messiah shows up, you're, you're going to be in a whole different place. Sail, sail right by you. Um, John is telling them, God has come for us, Messiah is here, but you can't do business as usual and expect to recognize God when God shows up in the world. You just can't. Business as usual will take you to a whole different place than where he's going. And the people out here, they seem to get it. They seem to connect with this because they say, what, what should we do then? And John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. This is a really weird thing to say. And it's kind of a huge reveal. The general direction Messiah is moving is toward
relationships. No more hoarding, ignoring the downtrodden. Only if the trajectory of their life is a life of sharing can they ever catch hold of what Messiah is about. If your trajectory is selfishness and business as usual, if it's we're insiders and good and you guys are outsiders and therefore bad, then, then when God shows up, Messiah will just sail right by. And then it starts naming professions here. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? And he says, don't collect any more than you're required to. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. They don't have to change professions. They just have to point their profession in a new direction. Stop exploiting the vulnerable. Act with honor and, and dignity. Don't, don't abuse your power. Don't lie to get ahead. And they, this is so revolutionary to them, they start wondering if maybe John is the one. And so he says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. So he brings in this new image. The Messiah isn't baptizing with water, but with fire and the Holy Spirit. And he uses the image of a threshing floor at harvest time, where they, were, you know, they would gather the sheaves in, and they would beat the, the grain, just knock it out of the stalks of wheat. And then they would use these winnowing forks, like big forks, that, and they would kind of just flip it up in, in the breeze, and the chaff would, would blow back. The, the grain would just fall straight through, and they could, they could separate the wheat from the chaff and then burn the, the chaff so it would be disposed of. Now, he's not saying that... Some people are wheat and other people are chaff. Everybody's wheat and everybody's chaff. The world isn't separated into like good people and bad people or good groups and bad groups. The line between good and evil runs down the center of every human being. And when Messiah appears, this separation begins to occur in our hearts, in our communities, in our institutions, our economies, and our relationships. Jesus will be like this winnowing fork that exposes the chaff. And then it says, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So what's this? What's the fire? The fires of hell? The final judgment? John doesn't seem to think so. Remember, John, the, John's the prophet now. The last prophet 400 years ago was Micah. And we read from Micah last week about the refiner's fire where things get heated up and reveals what, what is meant to last and what is dross and must be drawn off in the refining of metal. That's the fire. He's picking up where the prophets left off with this refiner's fire from Micah. The whole leadership structure of Israel that is leading the people astray, it's like a tree that will be cut down and, and, and put into the fire. That structure can't last. And the Messiah will then just work through every person's life, every relationship, every institution, like a winnowing fork, just revealing what is killing us and burning it all away. But the way that the imagery works, this isn't a threat. 
like that God's going to kill you and burn you if you step out of, out of line. It's a promise that if we get moving in the same direction of Messiah, Messiah will go to work on the fruit of our life. Help us see what's worth holding on to and what needs to burn. And then he'll burn it away. All the stuff that's killing us anyway. So that we can finally be free of it. We won't have power over us anymore. This is an act of grace. And, and we know this because the people greeted it as good news. Except, of course, those who were building their life on, you know, a big old pile of chaff. If you're married to the chaff um, and can't let go, all bets are off. You'll end up opposing Jesus' entire project is, you know, sacrilegious. There's a threat to the faith, a threat to the truth. John, John the Baptist here seems to connect with something that I think is really easy for us to miss because religion is religion. But the whole Messiah thing, Messiah comes not to settle religious debates. You know, God is not primarily concerned with religion at all. God is concerned about the way we live our lives and if we can flourish and become human, especially the way that we live our lives and how it impacts those on the margins. Messiah wasn't coming just to like change people's theology. He was not just addressing religious stuff. He wasn't even primarily addressing religious stuff. He was trying to change the trajectory of the entire world to bring down the powerful a little bit, to humble them, and to lift up the people who were just barely hanging on. And so John the Baptist, he gets brought into Advent every year and he says, don't, like, don't you see the, the trajectory of our common life and the path that we are on personally and as a people and our institutions, all of it, it will determine what we see when Messiah shows up. Because Messiah is going to scramble our categories. And it doesn't matter who you are, what you think. He's going to embrace a bunch of people that you have counted out. You can just count on it. And he's going to be near to the people who drive you nuts, especially when you despise them for their weakness. And the trajectory of our lives, if it, if it takes us away from those people, we end up in a different place than Messiah, when Messiah shows up. And so, so trying to receive Christ as our king it will be really, really difficult. And the tragic part is you, we end up kind of fighting against what God is doing in the world. And then, then, justifying it on religious grounds. And so John says it, it, it takes a full change in trajectory away from religious piety and, and power and insiders and outsiders and completely redirect toward the least and the last and the losers. He says, this is how you prepare the way for the Messiah. You can't do business as usual and expect to recognize when God shows up in the world. You gotta do something different. I saw this happen this past week. There was this big kerfuffle in American Christianity, um, mostly on social media and in the news, but it, in, it involves some, some friends of mine. And this famous pastor said something in a sermon last week, and somebody clipped it and put it on TikTok, and it went viral. I'm not going to tell you who it is, because it doesn't really matter. 
but he was talking about people who say they are deconstructing their faith. And he just kind of dismissed them. He, he kind of dismissed deconstruction as, as the sexy thing to do. It's just a fad. And implied that people who are deconstructing have never really met Jesus. Because if they had really met Jesus, there's nothing to deconstruct. And I was like... I mean, he's implying that deconstructing is just an excuse to walk away from, from Jesus. It struck a nerve with me. It really made me mad. Because I've worked really hard myself to deconstruct and reconstruct a faith that feels real. I'm still doing it, by the way. And if I do it right, I'm convinced I'll never stop. And, and I also, this has brought me so much closer to God, to a place that feels like faith, finally. And I've worked hard to try to help foster at Redemption a place where you guys can do the long, slow work of de- and reconstruction. And, you know, in my work as a pastor, but also writing and teaching, I, I've talked to hundreds, hundreds of people who say, I'm deconstructing, and I know what they mean. And out of all the people I've talked to, it's maybe one or two. I Honestly, I can only think of one for sure who I felt like was just looking for an excuse to, to walk away. And, and as I was thinking about this and then reading this story, I realized, oh, man, this is the same move. The, the move to run out into the wilderness and, and find John, same, same move as the move of deconstruction. When they headed into the wilderness to see John, this is, this is what they were doing. They were fed up with business as usual. And so they went to the wilderness looking for answers from the prophetic tradition, an important part of our faith. They went to deconstruct. They were doing something wrong. Now, I don't think we should criticize that. I, I think it's a move of deep fidelity and bold faithfulness to God. I, I sit with people all the time who are deconstructing. Nearly all of them are driven by some version of kind of the same concern. And, and these concerns, by the way, sound a lot like John the Baptist's concerns. And it's some version of, I'm looking at the fruit of American, usually, Christianity today, what Christians are about, what, the, what they fight for, who they embrace, who they hate, how they treat their enemies. I'm, I'm looking at what they're saying and doing, and if that's the fruit of Christianity, I don't know if there's a place for me in that. I don't know how to belong to that. And then they usually burst into tears because they love Jesus and because this is really, really hard to admit to ourselves that there are real problems with what the church has become. I was just mulling this and I sat down um, at one point this week to try to make a list. What are the main reasons I hear when I talk to people? Why are they deconstructing? What are the key issues that are driving people into the wilderness and into a season of deconstruction? I want to share this list for you, but... but with a, with a disclaimer first, okay? Because these, these things that I'm going to name can be polarizing. And to, to bring them up, I know, is to put my finger where it hurts for us, right? And so one of these, at least, if not multiple, we, they're going to make you squirm, okay? And I'm doing it on purpose. We need to squirm. I mean, this is just what John does. 
like you brood of vipers wasn't, hi, everyone. He was like, you see the problem, right? This is what, what is happening. And, and we just have to remember, when we, when we start to name these things, it's, it's supposed to be difficult. And, and people of good faith are all over the place on these kinds of issues. I'm also not trying to signal like redemption's in the middle of some big switch, right? Not running for governor or something, <laughs> which would be hilarious. Um, <laughs> it will be obvious on some of these things, we have taken a side on things like patriarchy or race. Um, but we don't have to all think alike. Anyway, so, so that's my disclaimer. And, and really all I'm saying is, this is what I'm hearing when I sit with people who are deconstructing. Um, they mention almost always first politics, right? Very often saying, specifically, 80% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. And what that did to me in that moment, I still haven't recovered from this. And it, it exposed a deep conflict and, and allegiance to political parties. It's almost always the first one. Second one is almost always sexuality. And usually it's some version of, if, ooh, sorry, I can't talk about it without because I don't want to mess this one up. If, if the church's stance on the LGBTQ issues is causing kids from the youth group to kill themselves, we should probably rethink our stance. They say something like this. Patriarchy comes up. The segment of Christianity that's synonymous with patriarchy is being rejected, and rightly so. Racism comes up. An awareness that the church has been and still is complicit in all manner of racism and racial injustice. Eventually, it comes to character, and people start to draw out instances of hypocrisy and cruelty, even violence by Christians, and they start to muse and wonder aloud, like, is it easier to be a good person apart from the church, outside rather than inside? They'll mention relationships, the kind of relationships they're looking for, relationships of deep hospitality for the other, of justice and forgiveness, of sacrifice, a safe place to lay down your life for a friend, honesty, virtue, and they, they no longer see Christianity as the path. Climate change comes up a lot. Christianity has trended toward denial on this issue and ended up, you know, exploiting the earth instead of stewarding the earth. Culture wars comes up. Our society is riding a rocket of cultural division and conflict, and it's headed for a cliff, and Christians will not accept a course correction. Injury and trauma, sexual abuse comes up. The church has too often abused its power, injuring and abusing and traumatizing kids. And it has not adequately, adequately confessed or repented. Lots of times we get around to the subject of truth that in the name of dogma that seems to be nakedly a disguise for power 
Christians end up denying things that are just obviously true. Clinging to arcane views and, and magical thinking and then eventually using coercion to punish those who dissent. When you look at these, I hear it every time some version of these. Sometimes there are doctrinal issues. If I had an honorable mention, it would be atonement theology. It comes up a lot. It's causing people a lot of pain. But when I sit with people, most of the time, the driving force behind the conversation is, is an actual fruit of repentance to me. It's usually love and concern for the vulnerable and the marginalized, the people who are on the outside of this world. And then often a reaction to kind of the vicious condemnation they receive from Christians when they ask these kinds of questions. And so they head out into the wilderness to find the prophets looking for John the Baptist. And often, thank God, they show up here at Redemption Church because this is a wilderness church if I've ever seen one. And there's space here. We do it on purpose to just slowly, faithfully keep working the practices while we de and reconstruct. And here's the thing, man. None of these deconstructors that, that I know are, are motivated by hedonism or a desire just to bail on faith. They're trying to find a way to hold on to faith and not have to leave it. And instead of shaming, we should be equipping and encouraging. They're people's, your persistence in this, you guys, is commendable. It's a brave thing to chase an institution that mostly attacks and insults you. And holding out hope in that space is, is amazing. And I've sat across from many of you and had these conversations. I don't know, you're not playing games. You're not trying to be cool. I see the tears in your eyes as you tell me the stories. I hear the pain in your voice as you recount pastors and mentors and friends and family who have turned against you and written you off. Most of the deconstructors I know are trying to repent, trying to change the trajectory of their lives and bend it back toward the outcasts. And what John is saying is, that's how you prepare the way, man. That's how you find Messiah when my Messiah shows up in the world. And it heartens me. It encourages me. I start to believe in, in the church more and more as I see people just desperately wanting God to come near, wanting to care about what Christ cares about. And they can see what it seems to me the religious elites cannot see, that the overall tra trajectory of Christianity in America today is very very troubling. And it can be hard for devout people to stay associated with it. It's almost like the closer you feel to Jesus, the more distance you feel with American Christianity. And I share this not to, to run down the church or Christianity. I love the church. I've given my whole life to the church. I just think it can be better. And I know it can be better because I experience it in this place. I do think it's different here. And I want us to be brave like John and name the tensions 
the things that are killing us. I mean, he, he headed out into the wilderness so he could speak freely and, and not get killed. Like, we can do that, surely, here. That's why everybody went out to hear him preach. He, he, and when he looked at their faces, he said, you brood of vipers, because he was just straight a weirdo, right? You brood of vipers. You need to change your lives. They're like, we know we do. What do you think? Why do you think we came all the way out here? Tell us what to do. And when he told them, what he said is, go be paired with the outcasts. Just hook up with them as you're de-reconstructing. Turn toward the least and the last and the lowly. And what you'll find is, in, among the very people the religious types reject, you'll, you'll find God pulls very, very close. And when God then comes near, if you're hooked up with them, you'll be moving in the same direction. That's how John says to prepare the way. I think redemption is a wilderness church. Thank God because I don't think I could be a pastor anywhere else. I'm too jacked up. And I think we are living in a time of disorientation and exile, and it's making a lot of people crazy. And so we need to not see them as enemies, but as people in need of grace. And if you are here and you are deconstructing, please hear me say, you are doing nothing wrong. You're not doing anything wrong. I don't even think it's deconstruction. Like, it's just grown-up Christianity. I mean, we used to just call it discipleship. (laughs) You can ask any question here. Our faith is not fragile. Our God is not insecure. You can ask any question, and you can trust. The questions will always bring you closer to God. Our only non-negotiable is... Jesus is Lord. That's it. We we stand on that one. Jesus is is Lord, and Jesus is with the outcasts, so that kind of comes with it. We're just going to be coupled with the outcasts. And so when you find the strugglers, no matter how unacceptable they may seem to the religious types, you just throw your arms around them, and you remember that because of Jesus, your arms are his arms. Your arms are Become the arms of God. Your life will be how God draws near to them. And for all of us, may we all heed John the Baptist's call to prepare the way and accept the reality that we can't do business as usual and expect to recognize when God shows up in the world. And so I say, get going, Redemption Church. Don't walk, run in the other direction the kingdom of God. Chase every loser you can find, every ragamuffin. Find everyone the religious types have commanded you to reject and make sure that they know God loves them. And then, and then, you know what? You'll know it too. This Advent, may we have the courage to flee to the wilderness, to repent and get moving in the direction of the Messiah to prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths to him so that we end up in the same place and so that every valley will be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people, it says all people, will see God's salvation. Amen? Let's pray.
Lord, we give you thanks for crazy John the Baptist, the wild-eyed preacher who had the guts to call everybody into account and could tell the truth and who was so joined with your word that he brought forth that word into the world. And I pray that we will listen. I pray that you would give us eyes to see the outcasts all around us every day in every situation. And that we would be humble and take the time and pull up near to them. Draw them in, even into this circle. I pray for those um, who are here and part of us who are in this wilderness season and deconstructing. God, I just pray that you would give them strength to hold on. Don't let go. That beliefs come and go and they have to change. And this is just the way it goes, but you have to hold on. You have to fight for a place to stand. It's worth the fight. You can do this. Mostly, I just pray that we can see the direction Christ is running and that we'll just run with everything we've got in the same, same way. All to the glory of God, to the glory of Christ, our Messiah, and our risen Savior. Amen. We stand and um, invite everyone to join us as we receive communion. We do this because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. They were eating together. He, he broke it and passed it around and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup and did the same thing. He just passed the cup around. They all drank from it. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then he said, it's every time you get together, eat this bread, drink this cup, take my life into your life. Be be made of the stuff I'm made out of and then go out into the world and be salt and light and let the world taste and see um, how good it is to be part of the body of Christ. And he said, every time you get together, do this. And so that's why we do communion. It's a weird thing, I know, but we do it to remind ourselves who we are and what our lives are about. And so we just invite everyone um, to join us and invite you now to, to join me in blessing the bread in the cup.